You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America, Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering The Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to The Conservative Conscience on this fine Tuesday, October 9th, here at Conservative Review, powered by Westwood One Podcast Network. And this is your one-stop shop of independent, conservative-minded talk, truly independent. And if there was ever a time we needed an independent conservative movement that actually had a proactive agenda, it's now. I didn't mean to put out another episode today, but I'm just going to talk a little quick because I'm in between a bunch of TV hits. And when I say TV, it's not like Fox and the main ones. It's you know the growing number of just grassroots type of video casts and shows that people have. Obviously, One News Network, they're great allies. I'm going to be on Caravan to Midnight with John Wells for a full hour and a half. So if you like to hear my rantings but see my face for whatever reason you'd want to do that, well, I'll be on for an hour and a half tonight. Um, so I'm just trying to catch catch up real quick. There's a lot going on. To start off with, um, man, I mean, there's there's tons of immigration news, court news, a lot of stuff that ties in, and some of this is going to tie into the UN. But Nikki Haley shockingly announces her, her resignation pending, I guess, the next couple months. It's going to be effective for that the end of the year, or as of the end of the year. Um, still unclear what exactly it means, if it's face value that she's just kind of tired and wants a little break. I mean, it sounds fishy, but you never know that could be true because there is no other plausible explanation given how bullish Trump is on her, given how positive it was, and they held a whole press conference, and then you know she spoke and everything. Clearly, she's not done with the administration. He said, you know, you can come back, take your pick of any position. So that's not a typical resignation where you know, hey, something went wrong. I don't know what the story is um, as of this recording, but that's not important for now. What's important is what, like I said before, whenever anything comes up in the news, conservatives should always have a message. And a ready-made game plan, a strategy play for how to maximize the news cycle for our values, our policy outcomes. Um, we should have our policy plays. We should have our a bench of conservatives that we want to push for any position. So, you know, when it comes to the UN ambassador, obviously. Nikki Haley was kind of an interesting figure. On the one hand, she's widely acclaimed in conservative circles as the most effective UN ambassador we've ever had, really standing up for American sovereignty, standing up to um, the bullying of Israel, standing up to UNRWA and all the other agencies and overseeing America's withdrawal from some of their agencies. I think... You know, obviously, it's undeniable she's done a good job. On the one hand, her weak issue is always immigration, which you can't downplay its importance because, particularly, the refugee issue is really, really the pipeline begins with the UN. And you want someone who could speak truth to power on that, truth on the threat of refugees from the Middle East. And it was always a little bizarre that she spoke with such moral clarity on Hamas and Israel, but somehow didn't understand the problem of bringing these same people in the country. I never really got that. But in general, certainly she was a very effective voice. She'll be missed. But here's the problem. Right away, we're on the outside looking in. Trump cares deeply about what conservatives think about him. Conservatives should immediately have leverage with the president to say, Maybe not demand a certain specific pick, but hey, these are people who are acceptable, and these are people who are not acceptable. And you better believe the swamp creatures are going to be jockeying for this every step of the way, and we'll have plenty of people lobbying on their behalf. 
who is lobbying on behalf of conservatives? You have a lot of people that could potentially want the position, but if there's no one pushing them, they might not even ask for it. So a lot of people say, well, well, who should we pick? Now, the part of the problem is because we've lacked a really a conservative vision on foreign policy for so long, we don't have that big of a bench. But you know, the names that just come to mind and let me know, you know, email me, tweet at me, let me know what your thoughts are. But my baseline thought is the following names, you know, first I think towards the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Now, some of them aren't names you'd readily hear. But, you know, my my first priority with any position is ideology. I mean, it's where are you coming from? Where are you headed? What do you want to do? Obviously, experience, your public persona, your ability to articulate your position, to give speeches. There's a lot of other qualities, but you have to have the meat and potatoes, which is, you know, do you believe in what we believe in? And, you know, I look towards, okay, Congress, well, what do you have there? One obvious position, obvious name for me that would be forgotten by everyone else is Mark Meadows. Mark Meadows is very strong on foreign policy. He's on the committee. Um, he has a nice amount of notoriety now, not as much as some other people, but he's pretty well known and has a close working relationship with the president. The president likes him a lot, trusts his political instincts. And I know for a fact he would love that position. I mean, he's miserable in the house. He's had enough of it. I mean, I don't know what he could do there already. The place is just a dumpster fire. Um, but, you know, I think he would be concerned, well, could I be con confirmed by the Senate? Um, officially, you know, Republicans hope to pick up on that two to three more seats in the Senate, realistically. So that should make a difference. Give a buffer if a couple of people go south on you. Um, but conservatives need to be thinking along those lines. Another person that comes to mind is Lee Zeldin. Um, he's the only Jewish Republican in the House, I believe. He is, um, you know, he, he's he's one of the rare guys from the Northeast that kind of has an appeal to the establishment. But he's pretty much with us. He's solid on immigration. Um, solid on American sovereignty, solid on Iran. I, I think, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think he is he is a, a very much an outside the box pick. But look, you know, obviously he doesn't have that much name ID, but is that important at this point? I don't know. Meadows has more name ID. I think Lee Zeldin would more easily be able. To you know, get, get confirmation. Um, but I trust both of them. The third pick from anyone, if you go to, again, the House committee, there's no one in the Senate that I like uh, on that committee, Senate Foreign Relations Committee. House is called Foreign Affairs Committee. But is Chris Smith from New Jersey. Chris Smith is a total rhino on fiscal issues, but he's always legitimately been a social conservative very strong on you know abortions, UN population agenda, um, you know, just really, really solid on foreign policy. So he's a guy that's going to score very low on any legislative scorecard, including ours. Um, you know, designed to you know, go comb through the voting records from a, from a conservative standpoint. But the reality is that a lot of foreign policy never shows up in a scorecard. So he would be perfect for a position like this. Um, now, just going, going back to Lee Zeldin, you, you do have the problem that he's from Long Island, which is very much a tough area for Republicans in this era. Um, now, I think either way, you would do this after the election, so you wouldn't have to worry about the seat this time, but maybe they'd be concerned about making the seat competitive to fill the seat. It would be a little bit tough. Um, Zeldin's a strong candidate, strong um, presence holding a tough district, and you know he really is one of the most conservative members from a marginal district. So, I mean, he, he would be good. I, again, like I said, Chris Smith would... Very much, I, I don't see him eliciting any blowback from the establishment, but I would trust him now. I don't know if he has enough flair, but that's another option. Again, less so than um, 
than the than Meadows and Zeldin in my my view. You know, otherwise, I'm really. I mean, there aren't too many other people. There is Victoria Coates, who held several. So she worked for Rick Perry, and she worked for Ted Cruz. Um, a lot of you, I'm sure, never heard of her. She was just a staffer, worked for Ted Cruz as his chief foreign policy advisor during when he was in the Senate and on the presidential campaign. She's a friend of mine. She worked in several capacities at the um, National Security Council and is now working for Bolton. She is the head of the Middle East portfolio. She's the director of that whole branch. So that's a pretty big position. Now, she's a nobody in terms of public persona, so it'd be kind of new. But on the other hand, it would be interesting that she doesn't have any you know, fl- you know, you know, real, you know, like uh, for example, a Bolton guy. Now, I don't think Bolton would be good anyway. I think it's better we keep him in just the head of NSC. He's doing good where he is. I think, and obviously, he wouldn't be able to be confirmed by the Senate. Sometimes a no-name conservative that you know is conservative, very smart on the issues, understands what's at stake, has guts, which all apply to Victoria Coates. Sometimes that's the best under the radar type of type of person. So that's just another name I'm thinking of. Um, otherwise, the only other interesting strategic name I could think of is actually Lindsey Graham. Now, you might be surprised about me mentioning that. Now, part of this is a strategy. Lindsey Graham would very much be a carbon copy of fellow South Carolinian um, Nikki Haley herself. In, in the sense that he he would be a solid voice against the thuggery and terrorism at the UN and Iran and pro Israel, but he's kind of weak, very weak on immigration. But it's no different than Nikki Haley herself. And you know, Nikki's views have pretty much been sidelined. We haven't had problems with her on immigration. It's been decided more, you know, especially with Pompeo now charged the State Department. It's been decided by by the higher ups. So I'm not so worried about this. And what that does is open up a Senate seat and we could actually finally get a conservative in South Carolina. That's my strategic value to that. No one could deny that when Lindsay is with you on an issue, he's very articulate and very effective. I mean, everyone agrees to that. I think this plays strongly to the portfolio of issues that he's strong on, keeps him out of the Senate, which 90% 90% of the time, he's doing bad stuff there and opens up a Senate seat. So that's, again, I'm just throwing out options there. I think that, you know, we, we, got, we got to think ahead. Like I told you before, I'm very disappointed in these rumors that, you know, he might vie for attorney general to replace Sessions. That's nonsense. I don't care what you think about Sessions handling a Mueller, but I mean, that, that's just ridiculous. That's just asking for trouble. Totally asking for trouble. But more broadly, what conservatives have to be very clear about is that two names being floated are unacceptable. Dina Habib Powell and Ivanka. I mean, you put Ivanka in there. First of all, what does she know about this? I mean, where is she qualified? Go, go sell your clothes. I mean, come on. I don't like this nepotism either. I mean, none of us should. But more broadly, she's the virtue signaler-in-chief. Every time something goes on in the world, an Islamic civil war, every time you have migrants rushing our border, she's going to be a voice for them. She's already a voice, but you put her in that position, which is cabinet level, you know, some people think, oh, you get her out of the White House, you know. No, because then you're a cabinet-level secretary. I mean, it's a cabinet-level position. And then now, I mean, she's, she, she is an utter disaster, unacceptable. Obsessed with getting us involved in Syria. And that's really what we need as a UN ambassador. Someone who's going to be a voice to understanding Trump's sovereignty speech he just gave at the UN identifying what is in our interest and what is not. And Dina Powell, obviously, she has a cushy job at Goldman. I don't know if she'd want to come back. But, you know, first of all, if Ivanka were UN ambassador, she would likely be her top aide, whether in official capacity or unofficially. 
still working at Goldman. And, you know, they're also floating her herself to, to come back. She was deputy NSC director under McMaster. She is the swamp. I mean, someone who literally meets with Muslim Brotherhood organizations. I mean, she's not Muslim. She's, I guess, she's hails from Coptic Christians, originally Egyptian heritage, but not not who we need, not anything we need. Um, it's important to recognize also just what's at stake with the courts. Now you say, well, how does that tie into the UN? The UN just filed an amicus brief in the United States District Court of the District of Columbia against one of the best, most effective moves Jeff Sessions, by the way, led under this administration that serves as the linchpin of illegal immigration, and that is properly defining asylum as not anyone just fleeing a garbage country, but someone who has an individualized credible evidence of persecution at the hands of their government, which applies to almost nobody coming here. The UN just filed a brief in the court. Could you imagine having someone like Powell or um, Ivanka giving their beliefs on the issue? So we need someone strong in immigration. We need to speak out about that. But that, that's the problem. We don't have a move. We're always reacting. I mean, the establishment, the swamp, they're going to be working their people. Trump has shown when we get through to him on an issue, he'll listen to us. Even when his daughter overrules him. I mean, there's credible reports out there, and I believe them. It makes a lot of sense that Ivanka wanted Trump to dump Kavanaugh. Not because he wasn't conservative enough. Because, um, you know, anytime the media and the elites virtue signal about something, oh, we cannot have these sexual allegations. It hurts my sensibilities. Like, no. We have to make it very clear, you know, Hey, Trump, we love you. We understand your daughter. You know, you, you have the right to love your daughter as a person, but, you know, we didn't elect her views. People voted for your views, and she is a non-starter for a position like that. I don't know. These aren't perfect ideas that I have, but, I mean, I don't see who else everyone else is um, promoting. I mean, people are promoting the current um, ambassador to... The the to to Germany. I, I don't know much about him. He evidently has tons of experience and worked at the UN. Um, he's a gay guy, and I look. You know, I I've I've never seen a gay Republican who worked for George Pataki um, turn out to be conservative. But you know, maybe I'm wrong. I, I just don't know much about him. But <laughs> you know, I'm seeing that name be floated. I'm just telling you, if we don't push a name. It will not be someone who's good. So just harking back to our series that we've been really focusing on the last couple of weeks on the, the lack of a conservative movement, the lack of a vision, these are one of those times where you need a vision on personnel and, and on policy as well. This would be a time to actually have a national debate over the vision of the UN and the need to eventually pull out of it and start a coalition of free sovereign nations that work together to guard each other's sovereignty rather than infringe upon each other's sovereignty. Coalition of even some Middle Eastern countries that have come around, Eastern European countries, Israel, a lot of Latin American countries that have now come around. You know, Brazil is very close to, they're on a second round of elections. They're coming very close to electing a good guy, um, what's his name? Just forgetting this guy's name, Bolsonaro. Jair Bolsonaro, he won um, the first uh, round of elections. He, he's solid on Iran and Hezbollah, and, you know, because really Brazil is the main transit point for bringing in Hezbollah or just, just in general Middle Eastern migrants, and there are many coming through the border. They originally fly to Rio de Janeiro and some of them, you know, get smuggled through that tri-border area with Paraguay and Argentina. We had a couple shows on this. Um, so that's a really important ally. So we have some good allies. We could start our own UN, and that's something I think we need to really think big on. And I just want to end on that note that, you know, these are one of those examples where we have that opportunity. A, Quinni a Quinnipiac poll in April showed that Republicans 
held a seven uh, an, uh, favorable opinion of Nikki Haley by 75 to 9, but Democrats liked her by a margin of 55 to 23. Name me any other Republican official in the Trump administration in this partisan era, polar, polarized era, that you you know have such a bipartisan support, robust support for them. And while I think they like Nikki herself, I think a lot of that is really a reflection of the bipartisan consensus among not the swamp Democrats, but voters, even Democrats, that they don't trust the UN. And I think this is an area where Congress could, again, legislate more things against the UN while building a long-term vision. One other quick point on this. I don't know why, what, where, when, who, and why, and I'm not going to speculate you know, with the resignation, but I will say I am impressed that the administration is maturing, that this leaked to absolutely nobody until eight minutes before the announcement was made. So, you know, that's that's good. I give them credit for that. Oh, and before I move on, I just want to give this over to you because I just saw this on Twitter while I was uh, speaking. Ashley Parker, uh, she's she's a big reporter and um you know, she usually has has the inside scoop on a lot of issues. So she just reported that over the phone, Senator Graham dismisses chatter on him becoming Trump's attorney general. I can do a lot in the Senate. I have zero desire to be a cabinet member. Kavanaugh one day, Saudi Arabia the next, prison reform the next. Okay, so let's just put it aside whether he's serious about not wanting to be AG or not and whatever – just note, see, most other people are going to pick up on Ashley Parker's report, the first half of what she reported on, that he doesn't want to be a cabinet secretary. What I'm more concerned about is what he says his agenda is in the Senate. I don't know what he means by Saudi Arabia. I'm not 100% sure what that means. But of all things, notice he name drops prison reform. By the way, it's interesting that they changed from criminal justice reform to prison reform because we – you know. Gave that a bad rap, so now they're onto a new name. It's kind of like global warming to climate change type of deal. But um, if if you think this man's suddenly going to become a conservative, I mean, and, and we're going to allow that to avoid a primary challenge again, we we deserve our own our own fate if we're that naive. Um, you know, allow a guy to screw us and so many other issues. Which again, you know, this is the type of garbage he would do in the Senate. I, I feel it's better to just take him out of the Senate and maybe, you know, certainly you don't want him as AG, but I think UN ambassador would, would, would be a lot better um, if we couldn't get a conservative. And so that's that. Anyway, speaking of the courts, so I mentioned the courts and, and I, I can never talk about the courts too much because every day more examples come up. Um, we mentioned that the asylum reform, it's not, it's not really reform. They're just properly interpreting the, statute j- just the broad background on all this stuff parole and asylum and refugees and and unaccompanied alien children and temporary protected status all these immigration programs what happened was over the years the past few administrations took all of the exceptions and made them the rule so there's like hey you know if the says if the secretary determines that there's a humanitarian need he may if he wants extend the status or afford them a status or something. So what happened was the last few administrations just abused it and gave the status to everyone when 99% of them don't fit the bill for that given status, whether it's TPS, whether it's asylum, whether it's UAC. you know, It's just one big third world invasion. It has nothing to do with an individualized persecution or someone who's severely trafficked or self-trafficked actually or in the case of TPS that they were here legally – and there happened to be a hurricane, you know, or an earthquake or a mudslide in their homeland, and they just temporarily couldn't return. It was just a bunch of illegal aliens taking advantage of it. They abused it. So Trump is just merely returning to the base statute. And now every one of them is being sued and they're being successful. You know, Trump has 60. District court nominees pending 10 more circuit ones. It's a lot. But it's still not enough that, you know, if they want to go to certain circuits, keep in mind immigration is national in scope. So it's an issue by definition. All they need to do is pick somewhere. 
And then the beauty is, if you notice what they're doing with sanctuaries, with TPS, with whatever it is, they go to multiple courts. They certainly go to California. They go to Hawaii. They go to Boston. They go to Chicago. They go to Philly, some, sometimes some, sometimes Miami. They go, although Miami, the, the 11th Circuit isn't so good for them um, as a circuit level uh, at the, the appeals level. But you know they, they go to the big cities where you have a lot of liberal judges. And they only have to win in one. I mean, this is the whole joke about the nationwide injunction nonsense that they could theoretically go to 93 districts and lose, but go to the 94th and win. And we say it's nationwide, it's enjoined. Now, again, it's the stupidity of our political system, the other two branches going along with this. The next time I get a chance, I'm going to ask Jeff Sessions if he's changing his policy on that. He seemed to indicate he might push back, but – um. This is what they're doing, and I'm just warning you that very few of them will go to the Supreme Court, and even the few that will, it takes a long time. And even when we get a good, favorable ruling, what happens? Well, no two cases are exactly alike, so they'll just come back for more with slightly different cases and start the clock over again. Forum shop judge issues nationwide injunction, shuts down critical policy for for months on end until it makes its way back to the Supreme Court. And I'm just warning you guys that I believe really all the conservative justices, but certainly Roberts and maybe Kavanaugh, maybe Gorsuch, because of the delegitimizing of the Supreme Court and the left is putting them on notice, you better not be political. They're going to be very reluctant to either take up the cases or if they take up the cases, they're going to be very narrow in their ruling. Now, I've said this before. I'm all for narrow rulings if they're narrow both directions. But the problem is when you have broad lower court rulings, you need the Supreme Court to shut it down, meaning if if – if the lower courts are in the weeds like, okay, illegal aliens have this standing to sue for this right in this case. So if you're on the Supreme Court, you have an obligation when you see what's going on and you see that the other branches and the entire body politic views a lower court's opinion until it's reversed as, as binding on everyone. It's wrong, but that's how they view it. So then you have an obligation as the Supreme Court to step in as, as and, and grant cert and, and issue a broad ruling. And say, wait a minute, illegals don't have any right to be here at all. Even legal immigrants don't have a right, a fundamental right to be here against the political branches if they want to deport them. That is settled law. You have to categorically rip it out from its roots, and the Supreme Court is not doing that. So this this judicial cancer that's just completely overrunning our sovereignty will continue. So anyway, anyway, there was another um, another case here. A federal district court judge, this is from the Hill.com, federal district court judge ruled Attorney General Jeff Sessions conditions on grant funding to force so-called sanctuary cities to cooperate with immigration enforcement efforts as unconstitutional. Judge William Oreck of the U.S. District Court of the Northern District of California sided with the state of California and city of San Francisco in their lawsuit challenging their, their requirements and granting their request for summary judgment. Friday, the condition session set in 2017 requires sanctuary cities to give immigration officials access to their jails, notify ICE officials of the planned release of a detainee, and follow a law that prohibits state and local governments from restricting how much information uh, is shared with the with DHS. Um, Oryx, the decision was in agreement with every court that has looked at this issue. Yeah, I mean, they're winning everywhere they go. Um, th- there you go. And I-, I didn't read the opinion. It's not worth reading such drivel. But this is where we're at. A state now has a right to federal grant funds. And by the way, the irony is, my understanding is DOJ wasn't even cutting off funds. They were. Just, it was kind of like race to the top. You know, the liberals do it all the time with, you know, conditioning funding to certain, you know, 
um, not, not an ironclad condition, but it's kind of like a point system. So, hey, if you do this, you get more points. So if you cooperate with ICE, you get more points. The notion that the federal government can't do that, it's insane. Sanctuary cities is the linchpin to illegal immigration and all of its social ills, the magnets, the fiscal drain, the crime, the drugs, the gangs. I have a whole report out today on the case in Lawrence. In Lawrence, Massachusetts, where 50 illegal aliens, some were maybe illegal criminal aliens from Dominican Republic, that were running a massive drug network. Some were sex traffickers too. Firearms as well. They were operating in the sanctuary city of Lawrence as well as some surrounding sanctuary cities there in Massachusetts. And they had enough fentanyl to kill out half of the state. And yet, Congress passed 70 bills dealing with opioids and not one bill dealing with the bulk of the problem, which is the fentanyl and heroin and meth and cocaine, which all comes in through the criminal alien drug cartel networks. But here's the deal. Here's the deal with the drug crisis, with the gangs, and really with any other social ill of illegal immigration. Border security is important. But, you know, you could always – illegals kind of picture them as having first and goal at the one-yard line. And let's say you don't have four downs. You have an unlimited number of tries. So you, you only have to successfully get in uninterdicted one time. You know, So even if you have robust security, okay, like, you, know, you might get caught a couple times. Few people get caught, but other people won't get caught. But here's the deal. If we had robust interior enforcement, it's not just you don't have to sustain your undetected status for a half an hour of crossing the board, whatever. You have to deta- you have to maintain your in the shadow status in perpetuity. In order to run a profitable drug network. They're doing it openly in these sanctuary cities. They know they're there. I read about this in my piece from you know, some uh, detectives that have testified before Congress that basically it's so easy to disrupt them because the, the, the cops will always catch the low-level drug pushers on the street. And they're often illegal. And if you would immediately apprehend them, they take you to where the stash house is, and that's how you bust up their network. But even some of the bigger guys, the bigger fish, according to the ICE press release, they were released by local law enforcement, meaning it wasn't like they were undetected. They came into contact with them. They're picked up on drugs, assault, gun violations, and they let them go. And again, you don't have to land a conviction, like I say many times. You just, th- you just give them over to ICE and you throw them out because you don't have a right to be in this country. If we want to lock you up in jail and convict you on the drug charge, then you get due process. But just to be to enforce our sovereignty, we don't need that. And nobody could get a straight answer from people like Kavanaugh if they believe in that jurisprudence. We don't even know if he does. We certainly know Gorsuch already screwed us in one case. Imagine if we had a party doing a Kavanaugh-style unified fight over sanctuary cities and sanctuary courts. Imagine if we had a Congress coming back in session all month to deal with this. It's insane. But now you have the courts saying you can't even – I mean think about it. While we raise the specter of judicial supremacy by saying, oh my gosh, if nothing else, we got to fight on the Supreme Court. Now we got our guys and the left doesn't even think it's legitimate and oh whoops, we're still losing. We're still losing in the courts. But you won't hear this on any other conservative show. You just won't hear it because whatever. They don't have the discernment to look for what's important, study issues, follow up on issues. But um, I'm going to link to this big report. It is very scary. Very scary what is going on with the sanctuary cities. Um, I, I don't know what to say here because, you know, you, you bust up sanctuary cities, that is, you don't have a drug crisis. When I say you don't have a drug crisis, I mean above the, you know, 
catastrophic levels that we didn't have until the proliferation of the unaccompanied alien children. By the way, a DACA recipient was just arrested for uh, meth trafficking. And again, according to the CDC data that I see, um, thank God, you know, the the ascendancy of deaths, the just the crazy spike has finally leveled off, meaning it's plateaued at a very at a record high level, but it's not going up anymore on fentanyl, heroin, um, opioid deaths. But you know what is actually going up a little bit is meth and cocaine deaths. Meth and cocaine aren't even opioids. So this is not an opioid addiction. Oh, because of opioid addiction, then they go to illicit drugs. That's not true. Because meth and, 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 and cocaine aren't opioids. It's a broad cultural, mental health, emotional health, values problem that we have in our culture that if you make the supply available with an unnatural invasion that you don't stop and you actually coddle in, in the interior in plain violation of federal law, then yeah, you're going to have a problem. They're going to dope up on anything they can get their hands on. It's nothing to do with addiction. Now, um, you know, one thing here is, again, we, we spoke about this with Molly Tibbetts' death, and notice you don't hear about that anymore. Republicans won't even make that an issue. Identity theft is everything. All these people were operating openly in a sanctuary city with identity theft. You know, I quote our our um, chief advisor on immigration here at uh, Conservative Conscience, Jessica Vaughn of Center for Immigration Studies, in this article. And you know, one thing Jessica always says is that it is almost impossible to remain undetected. At some point, you're going to come into contact. And if we had – if we merely just enforced our, our laws and had Social Security Administration working with the IRS, working with the Justice Department to seamlessly root out every identity fraud, every time a name is doubled, it pings them immediately. They contact the victim. They contact the place of employment if this illegal is employed. They contact the local law enforcement. Boom. If you can't have an identity, you cannot remain in this country. Very few people can. That's how you get them. Drugs, gangs, crime, illegal immigration, sucking our system dry, all wrapped up in the sanctuary issue. It's so popular. Don't Republicans want to win if nothing else? I know know they don't care about policy, but… You know, if it's all about politics, don't you at least want to win? So we'll link to that in show notes. There's there's that article. There's something else too. And we really need to have a broader discussion over immigration numbers and stolen sovereignty and just the transformation of our civilization. The I, I've written a couple articles already on the new census data. It's just insane. The, the sheer number of immigrants, and particularly from the third world, particularly those that cannot speak English, particularly those that are a fiscal drain, particularly those that are a security or criminal problem. And again, not a mixing and matching, not all the same ones that are a problem with one or a problem with the other. Um, the numbers are nuts. I'm sure some of you have seen this. Center for Immigration Studies, Stephen Camerata, our buddy there, has put out a number of, of analyses based on recent census data on the immigrant population in this country. You want to talk about the fleecing of American stolen sovereignty. This is not even this shouldn't even be a conservative issue. You know, we're at each other's throats in this country, but we shall all understand that we want to preserve a system where you're American by consent. Where you can't just come in here, unilaterally assert jurisdiction, break into the country, drop a baby, Make Americans pay for it, bankrupt our hospitals. Oh, and then, oh, the kid's a citizen now. Ha 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 ha. Nothing you can do about it. As you all know, I wrote an entire chapter, chapter four in my book, The Legal, Historical, and Philosophical Case Against This. But anyway, from Stevens' report in 2014, one in five births was to an immigrant mother. Now, 
this is both legal and illegal, and I'm not lumping in that it's not the same severity. Illegal immigration we want to get rid of entirely, obviously. Legal immigration we want to have – I think it needs to be uh, slowed down a little bit, and it needs to be more prioritized based on skill. But you know, if you add it together, I mean you got to have a country. Amounts matter. This is the mature conversation our body politic is incapable of having on immigration. Immigration is good, but how much? What type? Over what period of time? Go back to any melting pot analogy and, you know, amounts matter. And if one out of five births in this country is due to an immigrant family, that's that's insane. Um, 297,000 births per year to illegal immigrant children. To, to, sorry, to illegals is larger than the total, total number of births in any state other than California and Texas. 300,000 anchor babies being born every single year, sucking us dry. Um, among native-born, a large share of new mothers are either uninsured or on Medicaid. The rate is even higher among new mothers who are legal immigrants, 47% are on Medicaid, and among mother, new mothers who are in the United States illegally, 67% are on Medicaid. See, there's this big lie, oh, they're not eligible if they're illegal. It's not true. They come to a hospital, it's paid for by Medicaid. Think about this. According to his estimate, the cost to taxpayers for births to immigrants is roughly $5.3 billion. $2.4 billion, he estimates, are from illegal immigrants. Now, again... It's important the immigrant part too, and I'm not saying immigrants shouldn't. We shouldn't have some amount of immigration, and that they shouldn't have kids. Of course, they should. What I'm saying is that again, immigration should not be a public charge. We shouldn't have immigrants in the year 2018 in the type of country we have today on Medicaid. On Medicaid, when we have a lot of people who would love to come here who wouldn't be on Medicaid. But certainly, the illegal part, 2.4 billion, we literally pay for the rope to hang ourselves with 2.4 billion a year you extrapolate that over a 10-year cost there's your border wall think about this think about this in california new jersey and new york immigrants account for one-third of all births how do you have patriotic assimilation that way but then it's more than that in massachusetts nevada Florida, Texas, Hawaii, Maryland, and Washington, immigrants already count for one-fourth. There's Nevada becoming a blue state. It already did. Florida and Texas will go blue. And then you have you know, immigrants who account for one in five births in Virginia, Connecticut, Illinois, Arizona, Rhode Island, and Oregon. Arizona and Virginia. Virginia's already gone blue because that. Arizona's turning blue because of that. And again, you know, this juices up the census data of blue localities, and they get more house seats. This is insane. I mean, one out of every three school children in Texas now speak a foreign language at home. Now, when you have some amount of immigrants, they're going to you know, speak, the children will speak the parents' language at home, but it's just a sheer measure of how much we have. In te- this is not California, this is in Texas. You tell me how you have a climate of continuity, generational continuity of the American spirit when you have it that profound. It's not that immigrants can't, you know, in short order, be acculturated to our system. If we try, and if we have a gradual amount of immigration, but when you have that much, we've never done this before. I have a lot of articles out, one in particular comparing to the Great Wave, how this dwarfs all those statistics. We've never done this before. You know, one of the big lessons from the Kavanaugh thing is that when the media comes and unanimously burns you down, you're like, oh my gosh, we're, our goose is cooked. This is a lynch mob. We can't win. Something happens when you unite the entire center right of the country 
and methodically debunk everything they put out and never seed an inch. Which on Kavanaugh is pretty much the first issue that ever happened. You actually turn the tide. Republicans seem to think certain issues are like losing issues, all the public sides with the left on it. Birthright citizenship, really? And we're not talking about retroactively. I believe it was a mistake. It should have never been done this way. We're not going to take it away from those that were given citizenship under false pretenses. But to tell people that prospectively, you're you're someone sitting in Mexico, you're sitting in Guatemala, and you could break into our country, and there's nothing we can or should do prospectively to prevent you from coming here illegally and declaring citizenship for your kid and you know saddling Americans with the tab for the birth and pretty much for everything thereafter. And your older kids that are in gangs and drugs, you know, nobody agrees with that. We could crush Democrats on that. Just the sheer amount of immigration. Everyone agrees we need a merit-based system and we shouldn't have all this third world immigration. Again, if you happen to be from a third world country and you speak English well and you, you're you high skilled or whatever, that, that's fine. I'm going to count that against you. You'll be you'll score just as many points. It's not going to be origin-based. But if you do fulfill a points-based system, it will reorient it back more to where it was before, where it's not totally shifted towards the third world. And yes, politically, if you are a conservative, you know, this is not for everyone. This is an argument, obviously, for conservative electoral viability. When you have such mass migration and just diluting of any sense of continuity, of generational continuity of the American spirit, you're not going to um, – you're not going to get America. Think about it. In the city of Miami, almost 50% in metro Miami, 50% of births. Are to immigrants. All right, well, that's Miami. Well, let's talk about Texas. In Houston, it's like something like 35, 36%. Dallas, one or two points under that. Phoenix, Phoenix, Arizona, formerly red states, almost 30%. You know, this is wild, even in places you wouldn't think. Like, um, you know, like like Tampa, Tampa, Florida. It's over twenty percent. Columbus, Ohio, is uh, looking at the chart here, hovering around twenty percent. I mean, y- you can't have a country like this. You can't have a country like that. I don't understand it. Nobody ever voted for this. Nobody voted for this. I just I, I can't I can't wrap my arms around this. And, and 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 frankly, frankly, when this bill was passed in 1965, it was really expanded in 1990, you know, to really change our immigration system. They promised the exact opposite. 1965, this is now almost uh, 53 years, anniversary of the Hart-Seller Act, and they did not promise that. I'm just going to read you some quotes here. Um, Representative Philip Burton, of a Democrat from California, he said, Just as we sought to eliminate discrimination in our land through the Civil Rights Act, today we seek by phasing out the National Origins Quota System to eliminate discrimination in immigration and this nation composed of descendants of immigrants. Okay. Now, what were they going to do with it? What was the plan? So, Representative Emanuel Seller, he was the co-sponsor of the bill, Hart-Seller Act from New York. He said, with the end of discrimination... There will be shifts in countries other than those of Northern and Western Europe, meaning it wouldn't only be from Northern and Western Europe. Um, But here's what he said. There will not be comparatively many Asians or Africans entering the country. 
since the people of Africa and Asia have very few relatives here, comparatively, few would immigrate from those countries. And notice he didn't even mention Latin America, which came to dominate our system. 50% of our immigrants have come from Latin America since Hart Seller, um, roughly 28% or so from Mexico alone. No one ever would have voted for that. Um, obviously, the famous Kennedy quote, first, our cities will not be flooded with millions of immigrants annually. Uh, the present level of immigration remains substantially the same. And by the way, that level was like 100,000. Now it's over a million. And if you count other stuff, backdoor things that lead to green cars, it's a lot more than that. Secondly, the ethnic mix of this country will not be upset. Contrary to some charges in, charges in some quarters, this bill would not inundate America with immigrants from any one country or area or the most populated and deprived nations of Africa and Asia. In the final analysis, the ethnic pattern of immigra- immigration under the proposed measure is not expected to change as sharply as the critics seem to think. <laughs> it changed a lot more than they, than they thought. And I could go on and on. You know, Attorney General Nicholas Katzenbach under uh, LBJ, this bill is not designed to increase or accelerate the number of newcomers permitted to come to America. Um, it's only as a small portion increase. Secretary of State Dean Rusk, the present estimate based upon the best information we can get is that there might be, say, 8,000 immigrants from India in the next five years. And look, India, you know, most of them actually have done pretty well here. That's not mainly the issue. Um, you, you know, you might have a little bit of a you know, more like a values patriotic assimilation type of thing. They do vote Democrat, but you know it is what it is. Um, but my, you know, my issue is more from the impoverished places where they're on welfare. Most of the ones from India are not. Um, but it's just funny. This is eight thousand because we we get like, gosh, what do we get? Seventy, eighty thousand a year. Um, let's see what else we have here. Um. Any, I mean, there, there's there's tons of quotes here, tons of quotes, where they also talk about, obviously, the fiscal charge certainly won't happen. They won't be eligible for welfare, all this stuff. And here we are. Decades upon decades of record high immigration, way beyond the period of the Great Wave when we had an absolute shutoff, which is part of why it succeeded. In addition to all the other differences, we forced assimilation rather than mollycoddling it. We didn't have a welfare state. Um, America had a very strong character then. You know, and, and I understand the criticism of some that look, you know, at the end of the day, Americans aren't having kids. But the I understand, and that's something we need to deal with in the culture, but the last thing you do is then say, oh, therefore, let's flood the country with the rest of the world. I mean, Having Americans have no kids and then newcomers have all the kids, I mean, that's just a recipe for disaster. It's population displacement. Um, I get it. I get it. We need to, you know, actually, (laughs) yeah, have some sort of a mature debate on that as well. You know, what's killing family life? But this is where we are. This is where we are in this country. We can't have a mature debate on immigration, on sovereignty. Why don't Americans have a say in this? A say in at least how many, and in the welfare, and the destruction of the English language. I mean, this is as fundamental as it gets, folks. And, and, and nothing. You have a party that speaks with a unified voice on the issues we spoke about today. And then come back to me if we have electoral problems. Now, most of you in this audience understand that I don't have a real job. I mean, I do politics all day. You guys have real jobs. I know from most of you, a lot of you, you run your own small businesses because I know many of you have problems with Obamacare um, where you're kind of caught in the middle like me where you don't get it from work. And you're not subsidized, so you know you get screwed over with that. So I know a lot of you are, are small business owners, and 
you rely on people like me who don't have a real job to actually get the facts every day and get the story. And there's very few people who, who are like that. And part of the reason why I could do this is because I'm completely independent. I'm not beholden to anyone. And that's why I need you to support our advertisers that are bold and brave enough to stick not just with a true conservative, but a conservative who's not part of the tribalism, really doesn't have much of a connection to anyone um, in the tribe uh, political system. And I need you to support our latest and greatest sponsor, Bamboo HR, the top-rated HR software in America, rated by PCs Magazine. See, the thing is, when you're a small business owner, you got to wear 50 million hats. You can't just focus on the people and the personnel you want to hire and then focus on the job, the product, the service you feel passionate about. There's just the endless government regulation and then over and beyond the government regulation, obviously, just all the... um, you know the train, the flow of recruiting and training and record keeping, both for the government for your own um, benefit. There's no time. I mean, I have that too. You know, just in my shop, I am so into the policies and the content of what I'm doing. I have no reservoir left for just, uh, I mean, just simple HR type of stuff. And especially those of you who hire 5, 6, 7, 10, 15 employees, medium-sized businesses, this is a very big issue. I want you to check out Bamboo HR. They manage all your employee data. They automate the countless tasks you have to deal with. And a lot of things you wouldn't think of. It's a great checklist. The interface is very intuitive. I'm looking at my interface right now. I'm just kind of getting used to it. But it's pretty easy to transition to. And whatever it is, obviously federal reporting requirements, EO1 reporting to ensure compliance compliance with federal law, they got that for you. The e-signatures to sign documents, it allows the ability of new employees to sign important employment paperwork in a secure di- digital format, all there for you. The file storage, everything is there in the interface. Obviously, you don't have to have physical papers. Um, also interesting is they offer training. Companies can deploy and track important compliance training to ensure their employees are properly trained. Um, Overtime laws, that's a big thing these days. Bamboo HR time tracking add-ons calculate overtime automatically in all 50 states complying with the state laws. Uh, You name it, they got it. It is, I'm telling you, it frees you up to focus on people, not processes and paperwork so you could actually do the things you love. So right now, Bamboo HR is giving our listeners a special extended free trial. That's the thing. I always want to give you guys a free trial so you know you can see if I'm BSing you. You can see if you like it. I think you'll see it's a great product. Um, instead of their standard seven-day trial where they offer to everyone, you could try out Bamboo HR for a full 14 days. The only way to get this special offer is to go to bamboohr.com slash Daniel. So again, bamboohr.com slash Daniel for this exclusive extended free trial, bamboohr.com slash Daniel. This is a limited offer only available to our listeners. So go to HR, bamboohr.com slash Daniel. And let me tell you, this is the number one HR software that will allow you to focus on people, not processes. And God bless them for coming on board the conservative conscience and having the guts to stand for what's right. Um, Beyond that, there's a couple other issues going on, but we're going to save for later this week. I'm going to wait for Trump's speech in Iowa. He's going to join a rally. Trump is, much to my chagrin, he's in the back pocket of the ethanol lobby, uh, expanding the... E15, the ability to sell E15, 15% ethanol blends all year round. Here's the deal. And we're going to talk about this in more detail later on. I'm okay with getting rid of regulations on ethanol, but get rid of regulations on everyone, including the regulation that forces oil refineries to blend ethanol. In other words, this is almost like Obamacare getting rid of the mandates, but not the regs. It's the worst possible mix. If you unshackle ethanol, 
but don't unshackle oil refineries, including the shackling of oil refineries to the now unshackled ethanol. You're just screwing them with more blends that they now have to blend. And we're like, oh, you have these regulations on ethanol. Well, fine, get rid of them. But now get rid of the regulations that are putting independent oil refiners, not the big ExxonMobil oil companies, but places like Philadelphia Energy Solutions out of business. These are the blue-collar jobs in Pennsylvania Trump promised to protect. You know, it's funny. He's you know trying to give this as a handout to Iowa where you also have competitive races, but you know, ironically, they're being hurt by his tariff policies. We're getting crushed statewide for the governor's race, the Senate race in Pennsylvania. Three to five seats are in danger in the House. This would be a great narrative to run on. Instead, oil refineries are getting screwed. This is not MAGA. This is one of the most anti-MAGA, anti-blue-collar worker things, anti-free market things that Trump is doing. I don't know why he's bought into the ethanol lobby. But again, I'm fine. If you want ethanol and you want to sell E15, if you want to sell E85, if you want to sell horse manure, I don't care. But let the market dictate whether people have to purchase it or not. Very frustrating news on that front. We'll have more on it a little bit later, as well as our article on the strategy for Trump and McConnell should keep the Senate in session every day of October, including weekends, to force the Democrats' hand on nominees, executive and judicial, that are pending. We have an article out on that. Lots more to talk about. Thank you for listening, as always. God bless. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. 